All right, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles together and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with me. If you don't have a Bible, there is one on the pew in front of you. I'd encourage you to look at the text with me. The the main text will not be on the screens, uh, so I'd encourage you to get a Bible out and to look at it. I think you'll benefit most by looking and reading along as I read aloud. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 14 here in just a moment. Now, a little under... Two years ago, when I came here to Columbia Christian Church, one of the very first things that I needed to start doing was learning people's names. And as I did that, I've probably asked many of you your names way too many times, and so for that I need to apologize. But there was one person in our church that I never had to ask his name a second time, ever. I had it from the the second he told me. That's a young man by the name of Jake Spoon, right? I will never forget Jake's name, and I I didn't forget Jake's name for the very minute that I met him, because one of my favorite movies of all time is Lonesome Dove. And in Lonesome Dove, there's a character named Jake Spoon. Now, the Jake Spoon in Lonesome Dove is very different from the Jake Spoon that we have here, because the character in Lonesome Dove, he doesn't have very much integrity. He's not a good guy. He's part of the story, but he's not a very good guy. But I'll never forget Jake's name because Jake Spoon in Lonesome Dove, right? I watch that movie all the time. Lonesome Dove, if you don't know, is the greatest Western of all time. But also, if you don't know, it's the story of two legendary Texas Rangers, all right? Played by Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones. Captain Augustus McRae and Captain Woodrow F. Call. And in that story... Captain McRae and Captain Call, they're past their Texas rangering days. They're kind of in retirement age, and they live in a little bitty town on the Mexican border of Texas called Lonesome Dove. And in the beginning of the story, their old Texas ranger friend, Jake Spoon, rides up, and they haven't seen him in years, and they're they're reminiscing, right? They used to do a lot of ranger work with him. Now, these legendary Texas rangers, played by Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones, they are men of outstanding quality and courage and character, and integrity. And they were the best of the best at bringing outlaws to justice. But Jake Spoon, even though he worked with them, well, he wasn't like that. And you see that throughout the story. Early on, they start a monumental task of taking a bunch of horses and cattle from the Mexican border of southern Texas all the way up to Montana to see that country. It hasn't been, uh, it hasn't been civilized yet. But as they do, Jake comes with them. Well, Jake Spoon leaves the, the cattle drive at one point to go gamble in a bigger town. And as he's gambling, he falls in with a really bad group of guys, a group of really bad outlaws. And he doesn't know how bad they are initially, but all of a sudden he's caught up in a scene where they kill a couple men and steal their horses. And then the leader of that group, the worst of the worst... Well, he he finds just a few innocent farmers farming one day. All they're doing is tilling their land. And he kills them right away, just for fun. And then he hangs them after they're already dead. And then he burns them. And Jake realizes all of a sudden, I'm in over my head. But he can't leave because they keep threatening him with his life. Or you might say he won't leave. Well, pretty soon on the cattle drive, the, the paths cross. The paths of those driving the cattle and Captain McRae and Captain Call and the paths of these outlaws. And so the two legendary Texas Rangers, they find these bodies that were hanged and burned and shot. 
and they realize who they're dealing with. And they find, they find other bodies from the men who they stole their horses. And so all of a sudden they turn back into Texas Rangers and they go do what they do best. They bring them to justice. But as they find the group, they figure out their friend Jake Spoon is with them. When they come upon them and they surprise them and they start to tie their hands behind their back, Jake looks at them and he says, boys, it's me. It's me, boys. You're not, you're not going to hang me, are you? You're not going to put me to death, are you? And Robert Duvall looks right at him and says, you know the rules, Jake. You ride with an outlaw, you die with an outlaw. This time you cross the line. And Jake looks at him and he says, I didn't, I didn't see no line, Gus. Because he's not one to look at lines. He's one that just kind of is blown by the wind here and there, wherever it takes him. You see, Jake Spoon in that show, he was flirting with sin. Flirting with wickedness. He didn't mean any harm by it, but in the end, he was hung right along with the worst of the worst. Just one of the many life lessons from Lonesome Dove. And that's the lesson from our text today. You flirt with sin, you're dealing with danger. A danger that's greater than you might know. Let's see what Paul says to us from 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 14. God's word through the Apostle Paul, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Brothers and sisters, Paul is saying you can flirt with sin or you can flee from it. And if you have any wisdom, if you have any wisdom this morning, dear brothers and sisters, do not dabble with it. Do not trifle with it. Do not play with it. Do not dance near the line. When it comes to sin, run for your life. Run for your life, for that is what is at stake. Look at verse 14. The very first thing Paul says in this passage is, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. And now he says, Flee from idolatry. Flee from sin. Run away from it. Now verse 14 starts with a very important word. When you're reading through your New Testaments, when you see the word therefore, you need to stop and think for a second. Right? Turn on your brains. Therefore. Therefore means, in light of what came previously, what are we going to do now? In light of what we've just heard, the passage previous, the verses above, therefore, how should we act? How should we think? What should change? What should we do? So if you remember last week, we looked at verse 13. One of the great encouraging promises of God in Scripture that when we face temptation, He will help us. He will give us the strength to endure. 
He will give us a way out. He will never let it get beyond what we can bear. It's a great encouraging promise in Scripture. And so in light of that, therefore, he says, flee from idolatry. Now, what's it mean? What's the connection there? Well, think about it. We have a promise in verse 13 that God will help us in temptation. But then Paul says, therefore, don't put yourself in situations where you are likely to be tempted. Just because God promises to help you in temptation and to give you strength in it does not give you license to just go put yourself in your overconfidence and your nonchalance to go put yourself in places where you are likely to be tempted. Brothers and sisters, if you do not flee from idolatry and the sins that lead to idolatry, expect your fight against temptation to be infinitely harder. Expect it. Not only do we rely on God's promises, but we have to work ourselves. We have to hold up our end to flee from it, to run away from it. He says flee from idolatry, but brothers and sisters, all sin leads to idolatry. Idolatry, worshiping idols, is not just something that they did centuries and thousands of years ago with statues. It's something that's all over the place today. Idolatry is any time when something other than God takes up residence on the throne of your heart. That's idolatry. It's worshiping something other than God. All sin leads to idolatry. And so, brothers and sisters, flee from it. Run away from it. Run for your life. Because that is what is at stake. Do you remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? Joseph, the the dreamer. Joseph, the coat of many colors. Well, Joseph was sold into slavery into Egypt... And because God was with him, God prospers his life in Egypt. And Joseph is put in charge of one of the high-ranking officials' house, Potiphar. He's a high-ranking official in Egypt. He puts Joseph in charge of all of his house. And Potiphar's dealings and Potiphar's domestic life, it all flourishes because God is with Joseph. But then one day, Potiphar's wife comes up to Joseph alone in the house and tries to seduce him. Come to bed with me, she says. What does Joseph do? Does he try to reason with her? Does he give her a soft no and then go about his business in the house? No, he runs. He flees from her. And she even had a hold of his cloak and he leaves his cloak behind. Here's a man running away with no clothes, but he doesn't care because he's got to get away from sin. He understands the gravity and the weight of what could happen here. He runs. And because he did so, he ends up in prison. Because she accuses him. She accuses him of harassment. But we know the true story, and we know what ends up happening. How God ends up prospering Joseph, even in prison. He fleed from sin. He ran for his life. One of the very best books I've ever read on personal holiness is a little book by a man named J.C. Ryle called Thoughts for Young Men. In that book, J.C. Ryle writes this. When it comes to sin... Flee from the opportunity of it, from the company of those who might draw you into it, from the places where you might be tempted to do it. Flee from talking about it. It is one of the things that ought not even to be hinted at in conversation. Flee from the thoughts of it. Resist them. Destroy them. Pray against them. Make any sacrifice rather than give way to them. Run for your life, brothers and sisters, because that is what is at stake. Go the other direction. Get away 
from any place or anything or any person that would cause you to sin or might possibly cause you to sin. Get away from it. Now, not only does Paul tell us here to flee from sin, but he talks about, and this is probably the main theme of the passage when you really look at it, he talks about participation over and over again. Participation. You'll see the word participation a number of times in our text, or the word partake. And what he's saying is, when you flirt with sin, you're participating in a culture that is deeper and more dangerous than you might know. Participation is the key. Four times he says some form of the word participation in these verses 14 through 22. The Greek word behind that participation, the New Testament was written in Greek originally. The Greek word behind participation there is a word that we've heard before. Koinonia. Koinonia means spiritual fellowship. Spiritual fellowship. A participation, when he talks about that here, is deeper than just surface level. It's spiritual fellowship. He says, partake twice. Not just participation four times, but he says, partake twice, which is a different Greek word, but it means also to share in or to participate in something. Now, he uses an interesting illustration here. You heard Roger earlier in the communion meditation read verses 16 and 17, which is very appropriate because this is our sermon text today. Verses 16 and 17, he uses the illustration of the Lord's Supper. He's using this as an illustration to make his point. The Lord's Supper is not the point of the text today, but it's an illustration he uses to make his main point. Let's look at those verses again. 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake. Of the one bread. Now, again, this is an illustration he's using to make his main point, but notice what he says about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we take communion on Sundays, it's much more than just drinking grape juice and eating a small piece of bread. In fact, it's even more than just a way to remember Jesus and his death. It is that, it's not less than that, it is a way to remember Jesus and his death. But it is more than that. Participating in the Lord's Supper is a participation, a spiritual fellowship, it says, with the body and blood of Christ. When you take the Lord's Supper, you are doing something that is weighty and serious. Spiritual participation in the body and blood of Christ. And a spiritual participation in the body of Christ, the church, the people of Christ. So when you take the Lord's Supper, you are declaring your allegiance to Christ and to His body. And if you are not ready to do that, you should not take the Lord's Supper. This is why the Lord's Supper is reserved for baptized believers. Right? It's not just anyone and everyone who wants to come in and take the Lord's Supper. No, it's reserved for baptized believers because it is a participation, a spiritual fellowship with Christ and His people. And this is also why communion is to be done when the body of Christ gathers together. Communion is supposed to be done when the body of Christ gathers together. Okay, It is an activity for the church when it gathers on Sunday mornings. And so, for example, communion is not for weddings. There are those who will try to have communion in their wedding. Maybe a a first time, a husband and wife taking communion together or something like that. 
But brothers and sisters, that's not the purpose of communion. Communion is intended to be done as the body of Christ gathers together. Look at verse 17 there. There's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's supposed to be done in communion with one another, in spiritual fellowship with the body of Christ, which is the church. Scripture says the church is not a building. It's the people of God, the body of Christ. And so communion is not for just anywhere we want or any, any event that we want to do it at. It's not for places like, you know, random uh, campus fellowship on a, a Thursday night or, or just a, a get-together of, of some friends who want to give an ode to Christ in His death. No, it's, it's reserved for the church, for Christ's body. And brothers and sisters, even though we encourage home communion, right, we take communion to people in their homes, but those are people who are part of the body of Christ who want to gather with us and they can't. And so we take communion to them. Why? Because communion is a participation in the body of Christ. We want them to be participants in the body of Christ as much as they are able, right? Even though they cannot physically come. So we'll do home communion. But what we don't do is we don't offer up a a communion sign-up list for anybody in the community and say, it doesn't matter who you are, we'll take it to anybody willy-nilly. No, it's, it's for the members of the church. Right? The members of the body of Christ, because it's a participation, a spiritual fellowship, not only with Jesus, but with his church, his people. And so he uses that illustration, communion, to say, when you do this, it's more than just an outward act. There's spiritual fellowship going on. And then he uses another illustration in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So in the Old Testament... When people would bring a sacrifice to the temple, the priests would do the sacrifice. The priests would oversee that sacrifice, and then the priests themselves would eat of that sacrifice. God gave the priests a portion of the sacrifices to take care of them, right? And so what he says there is the priests, well, they're eating of the sacrifice, but as they eat of it, they're a participant also in the altar itself, in the ceremonies around that sacrifice, And so he uses all of that to make his main point in verses 19 and 20. So verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. Food offered to idols is just food. A a statue that people would worship, it's just a statue. It's just a statue. It's just a piece of wood or a piece of metal. Throw it in the fire, it burns or melts, right? Just like any other piece of wood or metal. Remember back in chapter 8, In 1 Corinthians, Paul was talking about food sacrificed to idols. He's talking about how it's just food. An idol is is really no existence at all because there's only one God. One God. Not many gods, not gods over this or that. There's one God. One creator of heaven and earth. One ruler of the universe. But he makes a very crucial point in verse 20. In verse 20, he says, It's not that idols are anything. That food offered to idols is anything. No, what I'm implying is that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. You see, that idol is nothing but behind the idol. Behind the idol is a spiritual force of darkness that we don't want to have anything to do with. We want to get as far away from that as possible. We do not want to trifle with that. We do not want to open ourselves up spiritually to the forces of darkness in this world. 
No, we don't want anything to do with being a participant with demons. Because there is a spiritual force in this world, brothers and sisters. There are spiritual forces in this world. And there is a force for good, but there is also a force for evil. Demons are behind idol worship. Demons are behind the culture of sin. One of the implications from this verse is something that actually offends many people, but it's true. Every religion in this world, other than Christianity, is demonic. It's demonic. Now, how could I say that? How could we, how could we say that? You might be sitting there saying, I know good people who are Muslim. I know good people who are Buddhists. I know good people who are our religion other than Christianity. How can you say it's demonic? Well, it's not that those people are actively pursuing Satan or demons. But think about this. If it is true that Jesus is the only way to God, then what Satan wants to do is convince all kinds of other people that they can be right with God without Jesus. Because then where's he got them? He's got them in a nice, safe, comfortable place where they think they're right with God and they're not on a comfortable road to hell. That's the safest place that Satan can have anyone, where they think they're right with God and they're actually not. And then they get up to heaven, face Jesus at Judgment Day, and Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. It's not that everyone in another religion is actively pursuing Satan and demon worship. But brothers and sisters, what is behind? Do not get it wrong. What is behind every other religion other than coming to God through Jesus Christ, is Satan. It's demonic. If it is true, what Jesus said in John chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, then it is obvious that every other so-called path to God has been set up by Satan as a deception to keep people from the knowledge of the truth, to keep people from being saved. Demons, Satan is behind this. And it is not just religions that he is behind, it is sin and the culture of sin. The key is participation. That word that we've said comes up over and over again, participation. Now you'll understand this because there are all kinds of things that we do in our lives where we say, well, I'm just not going to participate in that, right? I'm not going to be any part of that culture. I will not participate in that. We do this all the time. For example, the other day I was here at church working and the, the, the lights were off and the doors were closed, but I saw a plastic bag right outside on the steps over here. And, and I could see there was some materials in it, so I, somebody just dropped it off. So I went and got it and I opened it up, and I see uh, an advertisement for Cash Express and lots of promotional materials. Brothers and sisters, that thing went directly in the trash because I won't have any part with that. I will not participate in a culture of preying on people for their financial weakness. Because those payday loan companies, that's what they're doing. They prey on people in their financial weakness and try to get them to give money and get money that they don't have. They're teaching people horrible financial habits that do not honor the Lord and leaving people in a worse situation financially than they were before they came. It's much like the industry of gambling. I will not participate in it because it is a preying on the weak and those who do not understand the deeper ins and outs of their finances. Or let's think about this. I will not, I refuse, and I think we should all refuse, to share online videos where a political commentator 
owns or slams or ends someone else, right? I don't care if it's what you agree with. There is an insatiable appetite right now on the internet for videos where someone owned somebody else. That political commentator just slammed that guy. He just ended him. And everybody cheers and everybody says, oh yeah, my side won, the other side looks horrible. There's an insatiable appetite for that stuff, but I will not participate in a culture of belittling those who disagree with us or pumping ourselves up at the expense of others. Let's think about entertainment for a second. This past week, apparently, the Grammys were on. Now, every news outlet that I could find that that said anything about it, because I didn't watch it, from everything I can read and see, that was a bunch of hot garbage. And I will not participate in anything like that. Because my soul is at stake. I can't. For the sake of my own soul, I cannot. Not only is it my own weakness, but it's I won't participate in that. I'm not going to give them ratings for that. For the kind of stuff that they put on television. For people to watch. Not to mention children who could still be up at that hour. Right? I used to really like watching the Grammys and the Oscars. I used to really like it. I really did. Because I'm, I'm really into music. And I really like movies, right? Good movies, solid films that are made. There's getting less and less and less stuff that I can watch. But I like good films and good movies. So I would always be interested in the award shows. Who's the best in the industry? Who gets awarded for their work? That stuff's interesting, right? I can't watch these anymore. I just can't. Because it's a participation in a culture that I cannot be a part of. You know, for the Grammys, I I just can't watch the performances. I feel like i got to go repent after I see something like that. For the Oscars... Well, if I wanted to get insulted for my my religion and my politics, I could go do that in a lot less than three hours somewhere else, right? I I will not be a part in that culture. I will not be a participant in it. So you get this idea, right, that when when you dabble in something, it's deeper than just surface level. You're a participant in a culture. And brothers and sisters, Paul says in verses 21 and 22, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Look at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Can't do both. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Do not think that you can have one foot in the church and one foot in sin and be fine. It's a lie from Satan. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. No one. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot be divided. You cannot have it both ways, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, he says, use your brains. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves. Use your brains. Let's think for a second. Let's think about this. It makes no sense to go to church and to listen to a sermon on holiness, and to sing about holy obedience, and then turn around and watch a TV show on Sunday night with sex scenes and horrible language. It makes no sense. Use your brains, right? It's double life. It makes no sense to come to a worship service each Sunday and then to indulge in pornography each Monday. Brothers and sisters, let me just say about the pornography industry. If you are dabbling in that, You are a participant in a culture of Satan, a culture of the objectification of women, 
a culture of sex trafficking, a culture of abuse, a culture of lies. If you are participating in that, then that's spiritual fellowship. It's deeper than surface level. Oh, I'm I'm not harming anyone else. Yes, you are. There's all kinds of people that get harmed because there is a demand for that stuff. Brothers and sisters, flee from it. Get out of it. Tell someone before it is too late because you cannot be a participant at the table of the Lord and at the table of demons. It's a culture that underneath it is Satan. Satan and demons are the ones who run the pornography business. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to get drunk on alcohol on Saturday and then turn around and drink the cup of the Lord on Sunday. It makes no sense, brothers and sisters. Paul says, use your brains. I speak to sensible people. There are times where even though we are sensible people, and even though we have fully developed brains, and even though we might have a reputation for being a sensible person, sometimes the way we act doesn't make a lick of sense at all. When we really stop and think, In James chapter 3, the brother of the Lord writes, Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Out of the same mouth. And so, would you provoke the Lord? That's what Paul's asking in verse 22. Would you provoke the Lord to jealousy? You provoke the Lord to jealousy when you have an attitude of, Let's just a little bit of sin. I can keep that at bay. I can manage that. I can keep that at arm's length. I can flirt with it. I can dabble in it. It's just just a little bit of sin. No big deal. I can walk with the Lord and still do that. Do you really want to provoke the Lord to jealousy? I can I can keep those things at arm's length. It's just entertainment. It's just a way to blow off steam. It's, it's not really who I am. Paul says that's provoking the Lord to jealousy. Did you know God is a jealous God? He says that about himself in Scripture. When God gave the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, after the first two, he stops for a second and tells Moses, you are to keep these commandments because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In fact, he says his name is jealous. That's my name, jealous. I'm a jealous God. Now, that's not the jealousy that we tend to think of that, that, that it's in between human beings, right? It's not the jealousy of a husband who refuses to let his wife even speak to another man. It's not the jealousy of a girlfriend who will just completely go off on any woman who talks to her man. No, it's not that kind of jealousy. It's the jealousy that is proper between a husband and a wife, where they will not share their spouse with another. It's supposed to be exclusive. The wife says, that's my husband. My love for him is exclusive. His love for me should be exclusive. And I will not share him with another man. That's proper jealousy. The Lord has proper jealousy for his people. He tells us he will not share us with anyone else. He tells us in Isaiah that he will not give his glory to any other. He does not want us worshiping any other false god, any other thing in our lives, any other object of worship besides him. He's jealous for us. And so he gives the Ten Commandments and says, you shall not worship any other gods. You shall not make for yourselves any image in the likeness of anything on this earth, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We provoke the Lord to jealousy 
When we act like we can just keep sin at arm's length and we're going to be fine. When we act like it's no big deal. Just a little bit. I can manage it. It's like the man trying to raise lions in the domestication of his home. Might be fine when that lion's a baby. When that lion grows up, it turns on him and it eats him alive. It's mocking God. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Don't be deceived. You reap what you sow. That's the way God set up the world to work. But there are those of us who say, yeah, I know God set up the world to work like that, but but not for me. Not for me in this area. I can do this. I can keep this. I can hold this. I can keep it at arm's length. I can do it safely. I I know you reap what you sow in most things, but not for me in this area. Right? Or Proverbs 6.27, where it says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? For those of us flirting with sin... It's like you're saying to God, yeah, I I know when most people carry fire next to their chest, they're burned, but, but not me. Not here in this area. I can do this. I can keep that lion at bay. We return once again to J.C. Ryle. Will you play with poison? Will you trifle with hell? Will you take fire in your hand? Will you harbor your deadliest enemy in your arms? Will you go on living as if it mattered nothing, whether your sins were forgiven or not? Whether sin had dominion over you or you over sin? Brothers and sisters, we can't have it both ways. Do not provoke the Lord to jealousy. Your life is at stake here. We'll end with this. Some of us are flirting with sin. But some of us are also flirting with Jesus. Now, I don't want to sound irreverent here. Don't don't get me wrong. What I mean is, some of us are just putting our toes in the water when it comes to Jesus, but not making a commitment. We're not giving ourselves. We're just saying, I just need a little bit of Jesus, and that's enough. Thank you very much. Just a little bit of Jesus. Just, Just some Sunday Jesus. That's enough. Just some church. That'll do me. That's fine. You're flirting with Jesus. That's a dangerous game as well, brothers and sisters. Every Wednesday, after I get done with work, I take my little boy over to the music shop over here on the square for his piano lessons. And I do the same thing every single Wednesday when I walk in there. I go directly for the same guitar. I get the same guitar off of the, the, the rack on the wall because it's the best guitar in there, the best acoustic guitar I've ever seen. It's really nice. And I just play that acoustic guitar the whole time while Owen's doing his piano lessons. I have a good time playing a, a really nice guitar, right? But guess what happened this past week? I walked in, and I looked on the wall, and it was gone. And I made this face. And the, the girl working behind the cashier, she knew. And she immediately, she was like, John, I'm so sorry. We sold it. We sold it. And I was like, you sold my guitar? It's not my guitar at all. But, I, I mean, how could they do that, right? The audacity to not even call me and ask me first or whatever. But... What was happening was, I was flirting with that guitar. I didn't make a commitment to it. I was flirting with it. Just thinking, it's going to be there the whole time. It's always going to be there. I'll just come back and it'll be there. And now the the best acoustic guitar I've ever played is gone forever. Right? Don't be like that with Jesus. Don't be like that with Jesus. You can't flirt with Jesus. He's not going to be there forever. 
You will not have endless opportunities to give your life to Christ. So many of us say, yeah, I'll commit later. I'll commit later at a later time. Brothers and sisters, the time is now. There might not be a later. We speak as dying men to dying men. right? We don't know when our life on this earth will be done. We don't know when Christ will return. And brothers and sisters, you may make it to your deathbed. And you may have an opportunity on your deathbed. But brothers and sisters, there have been people who have said, I will put it off until my deathbed. And when they got to their deathbed, their heart was so hard they couldn't repent. You do not know if you will have the ability to do so after hardening your heart against Christ for so many years. Do not flirt with Jesus and put it off until it's too late. And then you get up in front of Him on Judgment Day and He says, I never knew you. It's over. And the door is shut forever. Here in just a moment, we're going to do what we do every week here. We're going to spend some time in silent prayer and reflection on what we just heard. God's Word is weighty, and God's Word pierces into our souls. And so we want to give everyone a chance to respond to the Lord, because it probably hits each one of us differently. And so we're going to have just a few moments where it's just going to be silent, some soft piano playing, And it's a time for you to respond to the Lord in silent prayer between you and God for what He's put on your heart. We ask everyone to do this. Everyone to respond to God's Word. And then after a time of private response where we're all praying, we'll come back and we'll have a time of public response where anyone who needs to respond that way can do so also. So let's pray together.